Hi, and welcome to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. My name is Ruth Haley Barton, founder of the Transforming Center, and I'm here with Steve Weens, Senior Pastor of Genesis in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Steve is also a Transforming Community alum, which means we have spent time laughing, growing, and being transformed in the presence of Christ in community with other leaders. Thanks, Ruth. And I want to let you know we appreciate the great response we've had to the first four seasons of the podcast. And we would love to bring more seasons and expand what we're doing with the podcast. But all those things take financial resources. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, we invite you to become a monthly patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com and searching for Strengthening the Soul of your leadership podcast. Steve, what is Patreon? I don't even know what that is. Oh my gosh, you're such a Luddite. <laughs> I know. Just enlighten me, please. Patreon is a great way that people who listen to you and who love the Ministry of Transforming Center and who've gotten things out of this podcast to be able to give $2 a month, $5 a month or more, and they get they get bonus content from you, Ruth, that no one else gets. Exclusive <laughs> Wonderful. bonus content. There's no downside to that, is there? There is no, no downside. downside. So go to patreon.com, everybody. Search for Ruth Haley Barton or Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. And please join us by becoming a monthly patron. Ruth, we have come to the end of another season. Oh, I can't believe it, Steve. Unbelievable. Uh, we do good work together. Uh, so for the sake of others, that's what this is called. And I was kind of intrigued on a book called Invitation to Solitude and Silence, which feels very personal, mm -hmm. that you would end your book with For the Sake of Others. Mm -hmm. So talk about that. Yeah. Well, one of the things that has really frustrated me over time, and I've been, um, you know, studying and teaching and working in this arena for 20 years, when spiritual formation was first coming into a more of a prominent place in terms of our thinking, people set up a false bifurcation between the practices of solitude and silence and the inner disciplines. They, they set up false bifurcation between that and our life in the company of others. And in fact, they actually put them in, op in opposition mm -hmm. to each other. So um, the missional movement was seen as being over and against discipleship and formation or within individual churches, there was this fear or this sense that my goodness, if we begin to encourage people to practice solitude and silence and self-examination and prayer and scripture, they'll cease being interested in the world and they'll stop evangelizing. And there was this tremendous fear that was there in the very beginning. Now, I think we've done a better job in that conversation over the last few years, but in the beginning, I found that really disturbing because I never did experience those two things as being separate and bifurcated. I actually experienced there to be a flow, mm -hmm. you know, out of the fullness of our lives in God, then the ability to be loving with others worked, um, you know, much better as opposed to just pure human activism that wears itself out uh, through human striving and effort. And for myself, as someone who had been involved in such an activistic way of living for so long, um, I experienced the journey into solitude and silence as being necessary in order to sustain my life uh, in ministry and in the company of others. So I just never could understand the bifurcation that we all set up. But that's what human beings do. We, In our thinking, we set up polarities because things feel like they're different when really they belong together in some sort of a seamless integrated whole. And so it was extremely important to me to end this book by bringing it full circle back around to our life in the company of others and our engagement in love with the people around us and with the world. 
Well, having heard you just say that, it makes so much sense that that's how it flows. Mm -hmm. Because I think many of us have experienced a life, especially in the church, for the sake of others, leading us to just burn out. Right. And so it makes us want to maybe just ditch Mm -hmm. that. I don't Mm -hmm. want to be for the sake of others. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of um, serving or being in the company of others for the sake of others out of fullness rather than emptiness? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I had a couple of very intense years of solitude and silence where God just led me off the treadmill of ministry and uh, into a deeper encounter with him. And I remember the desperation that I felt for more of God than I had right now. And then as I practice solitude and silence, I almost felt like I was insatiable. Like mm-hmm. there, I just could not get enough of what I was experiencing with God in solitude and silence. And, and I was afraid to come back um, yeah. into my life and ministry and in the company of others because I was afraid I was going to lose the connection with God that I'd cultivated, the intimacy that I'd cultivated. I was afraid I'd get back into my own false self-drivenness. And um, so I, I felt almost like this starving child who is given a bowl of something to eat, mm-hmm. rice, oatmeal, something like that. And she hasn't had food in a long time and she just is stuffing mm, her mm, face and mm. it's running down her shirt and it's <laughs> messy and can't even look up from the bowl because I'm so starving. And I was having a hard time coming back around in a way. I was afraid that I would never want to be in ministry or help people again. But the good news is that eventually we are satiated. Mm-hmm. Eventually God does fill the empty places and we do feel ready to give our attention to people again. And it doesn't feel so threatening because now we know how to continue to keep ourselves nourished. And so we can be with people without being afraid that they're going to take every last bit of nourishment that we've gained. And so uh, I was really, really glad a couple years into it to start to feel myself full again and to start feel love, you know, coming up in my heart again, not just for my own close people, but also for the world. And I began to experience a shift and a change that I was ready to look outward again by God's grace. I remember one pastor saying, I feel like my congregation all have straws in their mouth. Oh, yes. And I am the, yes. <laughs> I am the container yes. from which they are yeah. sucking. And I think that could be true. Yeah. I mean, in certain situations. Oh, yes. How do you navigate your way out of that? but not quitting your job or not? Yes, that's a great question. Well, by teaching them how to practice solitude and silence Mm -hmm. so that they're not trying to get everything they need from you. Right. Uh, And that is what happens. When we cultivate very activistic congregations that do not know how to receive what they need from God, then everybody's looking to get it from any place else, (laughs) and including you as the pastor. And, And you do begin to have this sense that people's needs for you and what they're asking of you are insatiable mm-hmm. and that you can never meet it all. And mm-hmm. no wonder pastors and leaders are so utterly exhausted because people are looking to them for what they should be looking to God for. <laughs> so if we can guide our own people into the practices of solitude and silence where they are now receiving from God, what only God can give, then they're more realistic in terms of what they should expect from you. And they're also dealing with their own false self issues within their own relationship with God rather than just functioning as false selves within the congregation. And before people embark on a deeper journey of transformation, let's be honest, we're all just bringing our false selves, yes. you know? And so everybody's false self is fighting and trying to secure what they need to secure through their own human effort. And it's no wonder that churches fall apart and break and fail and communities fall apart because we're bringing our false selves to it. And we're mm-hmm. expecting more from the community and from the pastor than 
than anyone could be expected to meet. So leading others into this journey is a really important part of keeping a church or a community whole and healthy. Well, and I would suggest to any pastor or leader that's leading folks that you just said, amen, times 1000, mm-hmm. honestly, get the book, lead your folks through this book, do it slowly, do it as slowly as you want. Uh, but that's one of the ways you're going to yeah, help your people. congregation will change for the better. Yes. If people are being guided into these disciplines. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in the second edition of this book, we actually added a small group process so that churches and groups could do it together and really process what's happening for them and be supported on the journey rather than feeling alone on the journey. So again, <coughs> uh, man, Jeff, can you stop um, sneezing and <laughs> coughing? Gosh, just trying blame to make everything on him. <laughs> that was me, folks. <laughs> uh, so we're going to put, um, and there is a beautiful new, di- it, it's the same book, but but as, as, as Ruth said, there are small group questions. Mm-hmm. So click on the link on the show notes. Uh, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, Ruth Haley Barton, and I think it'll be a wise investment. Julian of Norwich wrote this long ago, and I love this quote. I look at God, I look at you, and I keep looking at God. So how has this profound little statement helped you, Ruth, in your journey of trying to live for the sake of others out of fullness? Oh, this is one of the sweetest stories I ever get to tell. Um, And that is that... You know, after I'd been on this journey for a while and I had become um, really accustomed to a a quieter life and to a quieter existence, and and I was pretty satisfied with it. Um, But I also began to experience, you know, my own desire to engage with others more on the basis of what I was experiencing with God. And so there was one moment where I was actually asking the question Is there anything about my experience of this fullness of God that I'm supposed to bring? To others, and particularly in this case, at, I was wondering about bringing it to a home that was full of teenagers, because that was the stage of life we were in at the time. So one night, I began to see that God was answering this question for me in a, in a very natural way, because it was a beautiful summer night, but I was facing a writing deadline, and so I was whacking away on my computer, and my office is on the main floor, so on the main floor of our house. So if people are coming and going, it's happening right outside my office. So I was trying to meet this deadline. But on this night, our daughter Bethany had about 20 of her closest friends at our house for the evening. And it was kind of spontaneous. And they were playing basketball in front of our house on the cul-de-sac. But they were also going downstairs to play pool and things like that. And so there was just a constant stream of kids coming in and out the front door and going by my office. And my initial response to that was irritation. Can I not get some quiet around here to do this thing that I'm called to do and to get my writing done? Uh, and all too often, I have responded with irritation, I'm embarrassed to say. Sure. And when I'm trying to accomplish something and my family life isn't isn't helping and supporting that, I get kind of irritated. So as I sat there feeling my own frustration, see, very aware of my false self, I was able to discipline myself not to react to them and to say to God, is there anything you want me to bring to this moment? Is there anything that my journey into solitude and silence brings to this moment? And that's when I remembered this Julian of Norwich quote, which is a wonderful quote that we use to talk about spiritual direction and group spiritual direction and things like that. But I thought, you know, I wonder if this could make any difference here. So I decided that I was going to pray the prayer that she prays. First, I look at God, then I look at you, then I look at God again, that I was going to actually do that little practice, but in relation to these teenagers that were coming in and out of my front door. So um, first, I looked at God sitting at my computer 
trying to bang out an article, tired, kids coming and going and trying to talk and chat. I turned inward to that place of quiet and with different eyes, sacred eyes, um, eyes that had been hopefully transformed by God. Um, I turned my heart towards God and I said, you know, God, I'm looking at you. How am I supposed to see these kids through your eyes? And so what began to happen was this huge shift and I began to feel gratitude for this youthful energy, all these <laughs> wonderful high school kids who are choosing our home to hang out in and do these life-giving activities, basketball and volleyball, and they weren't out making trouble. And um, and I began to feel gratitude as I looked at these kids in my own situation through the eyes of God. And I began to see the beauty of their life-giving energy and the people that they were and the people that wanted, the young ones that wanted to interact with me, I began to feel privileged to be able to interact with them in that way. And there was this this deep prayer that welled up, uh, a, a prayer that somehow they would be blessed by the bits and pieces of our interactions and by our home. And so rather than tiredness, at the end of that evening, um, another evening of parental responsibility, I began to experience how being present to God in the midst of my ordinary life was actually changing my posture mm. and changing my feelings about being in my own home. So I was present to God. I began to see the kids through God's eyes. Then I was present to them and brought whatever was in me to them. And it began to change our interactions, changed how I was feeling about them. And then I look at God again. So that's going back to prayer. So that's first I look at God and get myself oriented to how God is seeing these kids. Then I look at them and I interact with them fully and give them my full presence. Then I look at God again, which represents prayer and holding them in God's presence prayerfully. And so I found that I had been changed by this way of being with God was now giving me a new way of being in my life with teenagers in my home. And now instead of moving beyond solitude by God's grace, this solitude was inside me, this, this very sacred place to pay attention to God relative to my life was now inside me. And I no longer had to have perfect quiet in order to access solitude because it's the closet now and it's inside mm -hmm. me. And now I could bring whoever into that place and be in God's presence for them and with them and on their behalf. And so I began to really experience that solitude and silence changes how we are with our lives, changes how we see our lives, changes how we see the people in our lives, fills our hearts with love and gratitude for them. And it literally changes us. And I'm grateful. So there is this permission, I think, that we need to give ourselves in those moments where we're tempted to respond with irritability to pause, mm -hmm. right? Even if it's for 10 seconds and, yeah. and, and look at God. Oh, God, I feel like yeah. responding this way. And yeah. God might say, oh, yeah. honey, yeah. like, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. You should. Yeah. Um, but then God might give you something. Right. Like God gave you. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm hearing you say that in the chaos of ordinary life, mm -hmm. which is what solitude and silence will enable you to go do and flourish, there can be these momentary 10 seconds, five seconds, these, like you can immediately drop into it mm -hmm. and, yeah. and have a different response. That's right. I mean, how beautiful. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Um, so, um, Okay, Ruth, so how does your experience in silence uh, impact your eventual words with others? Mm -hmm. Well, Bonhoeffer has a wonderful quote in his book, Life Together, where he says that right speech comes out of silence and right silence comes out of speech. Mm. And so he really makes the connection between being willing to be in silence and then to allow your words to come out of your silence. And that when you do that, your words 
are better. So I'm also reminded of the scripture that could give us preachers and writers despair, and that is that in the multitude of words there is much transgression. Yes. <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. Um, th- that that's a very dangerous situation, mm-hmm. and so. I've been encouraged to discover that silence becomes a place where our words end up being refined and where we can actually be in touch with what's truest about us, what's truest and most needed in the situation. Um, We can be in touch with our own motivations so that we can choose to have words that come out of a truer motivation than what might typically be on the surface of our lives. So we can use words in all sorts of different ways, can't we? We can use words to control. We Mm. can use words to compete. We can use words to diminish other people or to be cynical. Um, There's all sorts of negative ways that we can use words. But when we are practicing silence, we actually are more in touch with what's motivating our words. And then we can choose words that are motivated from love, motivated from trust, motivated uh, by the true wisdom that God gives rather than the ways in which we often, you know, try to compete and minimize what other people have to bring. And over time, we can actually become safer for other people because our words no longer slice and dice. We're not using words in negative ways, but our words become, as as the Proverbs talks about, um, apples of gold and silver settings or whatever it is, mm-hmm. very well-placed. What that passage is trying to say is that our words become beautiful and appropriate and well-placed. Yes. And I'm, I'm thinking now of different kinds of people. Some people are external processors mm-hmm. and they're going to get in trouble yes. more often by, mm-hmm. by what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they experience time in solitude and silence, um, th- they can be safer. There's another kind of person that might be an internal processor that's going to be less likely to say things. But if they don't experience solitude and silence, what I've experienced with them is that they're silent. They'll never bring words at all. Right. And they'll just stay in that self-protective cocoon. But also, they're, I, I've experienced silence can be harmful mm-hmm. in a certain way mm-hmm. when it's not um, bathed in solitude. Mm-hmm. It, like, it can feel like, oh my gosh, what did we, you know, what did we do? Um, so what would you say to people who... Um, in general, need to speak more, yeah. but mm-hmm. have those words when they do speak um, flow out of right. silence. Right. Well, this brings us to the point that some people feel like solitude and silence is only for introverts. I have people ask me that oh, all yeah, the time. Really if I'm an extrovert, do I have to practice solitude and silence? And what I say to people is that there are basic spiritual disciplines that all of us need, no matter what our personality type. The only question is why it's going to be difficult and why it's going to be beneficial. <laughs> so for the extrovert, solitude and silence feels very challenging, but they need it so that they don't skate along the surface of life without giving any deeper reflection. And also so that their words are coming from a deeper and wiser and more connected place. Now for the introvert, the introverts need solitude and silence too for the replenishment of their personalities. But they have to be careful not to get sucked into morbid introspection and not to use it as a way to hide and avoid life in the company of others. And yes, um, introverts often need to, to answer the call to bring the words that God has given them out into their life in community. And they also need to be very, very careful not to use solitude and silence, which is very natural for them, not to use it as a way of avoiding relationship mm-hmm. and avoiding engagement with the world and to be faithful, to bring the words that God gives them as God brings it. And so that that's their real commitment is to say, okay, if God gives me words, if God gives me something to offer, I will offer it. I will not stay in isolation. 
I remember, so at the beginning of this last year, our staff decided to make solitude and silence a priority. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, we said every, everyone on staff, we are insisting that everyone mm-hmm. spends two hours a month. Um, it might be one hour, one week, another, but two hours a month. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the colleagues said, okay, I, I have to be honest, I've never done this ever. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm going to ask some dumb questions now, but like, can I bring music? Can mm-hmm. I bring books? And, you know, we all laughed and we said, yeah. okay, start That's where so you, nice of you yeah, to laugh right in yeah. her face there, yeah. Steve. Oh <laughs> I'm kidding we you. We all ridiculed her. Yes, and... that's right. We're not laughing at you. We're laughing with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're not laughing with you. We're laughing at you. Uh, no, I, but but we, we actually, um, we thanked her for being yes. so honest. And then we said, start, start where you are and mm-hmm. just see where you go. Well, many months later, actually very recently, she sent me an email and she said, I need to share something with you, but I've been sitting on it for a while because I know that my tendency is just to blurt something out in a way that yes. it won't, won't be helpful. But what I've, so I've been sitting on this for a while in my silence and mm-hmm. solitude. And here's what I want to say. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, like right. there, <clears throat> there, there you go. So she recognized part of her false self pattern is just to get mad and make lots of noise, um, which isn't, that, that's not wrong or bad, but it's not always helpful. Right. She, she recognized. So I, I, I thought, oh my gosh, like I didn't, we, we weren't checking in on it. How's mm-hmm. your silence and solitude going? But it really was helping her. Yes. Yes. So last question as we, as we wrap up this oh, I can season. hardly believe it. I can hardly believe it. Another season. Is there anything else you want to say about how to bring this into your life in a practical way and yeah. how to do that well? Well, one of the things I like to encourage people to keep in mind is that sometimes when we, you know, adopt a new practice into our lives, it's meaningful for us. And in this case, we're talking about solitude and silence that it can get, it can, it can be easy to become rigid and legalistic about it. And so I remember early on when solitude and silence had become so important to me and it was so life-giving. And then if, if any, if anything or anyone would interrupt my practice of solitude and silence, I'd become angry and ugly about it, you know? And I thought, oh my goodness, I know that the the that the desired result of solitude and silence is for the sake of others is so that we become more loving and more able to give ourselves in love to others and here i am screaming at people because they interrupt my solitude and silence and so i think the most important thing i want to say here at the end is to set your intention to uh, you know, engage in solitude and silence in in very intentional ways but then hold it somewhat loosely you know what your heart is you know you want it and you know that it's good Um, but if life interrupts, your child is throwing up through the night and you have to care for them in the morning and you don't get your morning solitude, then you give yourself in love to the family member who needs it. You don't get angry with them because they're interrupting your solitude or there's a crisis and you must go be with a person in crisis. Well, the point of solitude and silence is to be more loving and more present to others. So, you know, you let it go and you know, you've got such a strong intention that you'll come back to it. And that's the beauty of knowing what your intention is because you'll come back to it immediately. As soon as you're able, you'll come back to it. So the, the final encouragement I want to make is to be intentional, but not rigid and legalistic. And to remember that the whole point of this is so the love of God can fill our hearts and then flow out to others because there is nothing that feels like the love that is God. And there is nothing that transforms us like the presence that is God. And there's nothing else that will produce such good fruit in our lives as the silence that is God. And the purpose is always then to allow that love 
to flow to others. Um, solitude and silence, in a sense, are not ends in themselves. Right. They are means to the end of loving God and loving others more. And so allow solitude to do its good work and trust your intention, even in those days when you're not able to accomplish it exactly like you had hoped. Uh, do you have a last practice you would like to lead us yes. into? Yes. Um, so at the end of this season, I think it's important for us to touch desire and intention. And in fact, to to feel, allow yourself to feel the desire that you feel for the things that we've been talking about. And, and I know that this season in particular probably touches very deep desire in us to be in that quiet place before God and to experience the transforming presence of God in our lives. And so let that desire here at the end of the episode, let that desire deepen into intentionality and actually breathe with that desire. Let yourself feel, feel it, how deep it goes, where you're experiencing it in your body. How bad do you want it? And then allow that desire to guide you into thinking about where you might be able to incorporate solitude and silence into your life meaningfully. How can you give God the best time of your life, the best time of your day? Is that in the mornings? Because mornings are quiet at your house and you're fresh and you're awake and alert and you want to give God that time. Um, maybe if you have young children who get up so early that that's not possible, um, you think about nap times and you say, you know, the first hour of nap time is going to be the time that I give to solitude and silence. I'm not going to wash the floor. I'm not going to be on email. I'm going to give that first hour of nap time to God or half an hour, whatever it is that you want to give or can give. Um, maybe you're a night owl and the moments after people have gone to bed are times of intimacy and quiet. And you say, I want to give that time to God. I don't want to watch TV at night. I don't want to be scanning on my phone or on my um, computer, but I want to give those that, that late night hour that the intimacy of that time to God. Um, or maybe if life is so full and you've got, you're so tired, maybe it's your lunch hour at work, but whatever it is, when can I incorporate even 10 minutes or 20 to be quiet in God's presence and let your desire carry you into a very specific intent. And maybe you're, even compassionate and gentle with yourself and you say, I may not be able to do it every day, but what about five days a week or three days a week? That's realistic. And I do encourage you to be realistic, ruthlessly so, if you'll pardon the pun. What's realistic for me? Don't set yourself up for failure by being unrealistic. And in the silence, as you feel ready, tell God about your desire and make your commitment. In silence, our souls wait for you and you alone, O oh God. From you alone comes our salvation. And oh, how we need to be saved every day. From life in our culture, from our own inner compulsions, 
from all that seems to be going wrong in our world. Oh God, lead us into that silent place where we in our world can be saved. Amen. Thanks so much for listening today. We know there are thousands of podcasts to choose from, and we are grateful you spent the last 30 minutes with us. If God has stirred something in you about your own leadership experience, maybe God is inviting you to begin your own journey of leadership transformation. I was a part of Transforming Community Number 6 way back in 2011, and it was such an important part of my spiritual journey. Transforming Community is a practice-based spiritual formation journey with nine quarterly retreats. The Transforming Community is designed to integrate your spirituality and leadership, helping you reclaim practices and experiences spiritual seekers down through the ages have used to open themselves to God's transforming work. Also, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we would love to hear from you, and there are three ways that you can respond. One is going to patreon.com, search for Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast, and you can become a monthly patron at various levels. Second is that you can share your favorite episode with friends. And third is you can go onto iTunes and leave a rating and review. To find out more about the Transforming Community Experience or to apply, go to transformingcenter.org. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. May your love be shown. May